Hi, Gary Zacharias here with the Apologist Bookshelf. I have a reference book I'd like to share with you this time. It's put out by Zondervan. It's called The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer. And uh, I, I think it's something worth uh, hanging on to. It's part of a series called Understand the Bible. It's a six-volume series. And it says, uh, referencing both the NIV and the New American Standard, this resource makes scholarly insights accessible to everyone. So whether you're a student, pastor, everyday Bible lover, or even a skeptic, uh, this book is going to show you why the Bible is believable and dependable with a message you can live by. So let me uh, start off, gosh, there's so much good stuff in here, but let me start off with uh, something about the author himself. Uh, it says that he wrote this to show that there's nothing in the Bible inconsistent with the claim that it's the Word of God. And so Dr. Archer is, is quite a famous uh, person, a terrific teacher, and uh, he was uh, for a while involved with Decision Magazine. It was put out by the Billy Graham Evangelical Association. And um, I just <laughs> I read a paragraph that he wrote before he started in the preface. Now, just to give you an idea, it said he's been a teacher at the graduate seminary level in the field of biblical criticism for a long time. He says uh, 30 years. And he said these were questions. Remember, the title is uh, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulty. So he said these have been problems and questions that have been thrown at him by some of his students. So just to give you a background, it says uh, he was an undergrad at Harvard, and he wanted to know the languages and cultures that tied into the Bible. So he was trained in Latin and Greek, French and German, went to seminary, majored in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic. Then after that, he got involved with Syriac and Akkadian to the point that he was good enough to teach elective courses in those subjects. Uh, he studied Middle Kingdom Egyptian times, he specialized in the 18th dynasty in Egypt. He studied Coptic, Sumerian. I mean, and then he's in law school, uh, admitted to the Massachusetts bar. I mean, you go on and on. And uh, I got exhausted just reading that kind of stuff. So let me just, uh, it's so much fun. You can kind of dip in and out of this. Obviously, you don't sit there and read the whole thing. But it's all laid out very nicely according to the books of the Bible, starting with Genesis, going all the way to Revelation. And then at the back, it's got an index of subjects, an index of names, and an index of uh, scripture. So if you say, gosh, I want to find out something about Second Kings, well, fine, you, and you, you don't want to flip through the whole book. You go to the back, and you can find it there. Anyway, let me do this. Let me take just two parts, just to give you a kind of a flavor for what he's up to here. So he starts off, of course, with uh, Genesis, and the big picture is, what solid evidence is there for the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch? Because that's been a controversial thing, hasn't it? Um, the traditional view is that it was Moses for uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And people said, oh no, I, that can't be. And he's got this section here that I'd never heard of. I thought it was fascinating. He called it internal evidences of the Mosaic composition. So here we go. I'm not doing them all, by the way, just because of time, but just a few to give you an idea that there are good, solid reasons to believe that Moses actually did write those first five books of the Bible. So, for example, number one, he says the climate and the weather that's referred to in Exodus is Egyptian, not Palestinian. So he's even got some verses to check it out, but I'm just 
trying to give you kind of the big picture here, so I'll skip on. Number two, the animals and the trees that are referenced in Exodus through Deuteronomy are indigenous to Egypt or the Sinai Peninsula, Peninsula, but none of them are peculiar to Palestine. Isn't that interesting? So animals and trees get mentioned that are Egyptian, but not Palestinian. Here's number three. He says, geographic references betray somebody who's personally not very familiar with Palestine, but well acquainted with Egypt. And I will give you an example here, which I think is interesting. This is in Genesis 13.10. The author is trying to tell the reader how rich the vegetation of the Jordan Valley was. So what does he do? He compares it to a well-known locality in the eastern part of the Egyptian Delta. Well, it says nothing could be plainer from this reference than the author that was writing for a readership that was pretty unfamiliar with parts of Palestine, but they knew the scenery of Lower Egypt. So that's Genesis 13.10. You could look that up sometime if you want. Here's another point, number four. He says uh, these first five books, well, especially Exodus, the end of Deuteronomy, talk a lot about a large tent or tabernacle as a key place to worship. And it says if you lived in Palestine, you had the temple by that time if it was written that late. And it says uh, that there's no way people would have known about that tabernacle living because that was much more Egyptian-oriented. Here's another one. There are many evidences of a technical linguistic nature that suppose there's an Egyptian background. So he says there are a far greater number of Egyptian names and loan words in the, in the Pentateuch than any other place of Scripture. Okay, so do you hear that, that? Things that uh, the the word choices and all and loan words are very Egyptian, much more so than any other part of Scripture. Number six, Jerusalem. Now you'd think if it, this thing was written actually much later, by somebody during the time where the Jews had their own country and had Jerusalem and all, you'd think Jerusalem would pop up there on many occasions. He says, but a careful examination of the text from Genesis through De Deuteronomy. He says, the astonishing result is that Jerusalem is never once mentioned by name. Okay, well, that seems pretty good. So this just gives you an idea of what he's talking about here, why you can believe that it was Moses. So I'm, I'm going to skip ahead because another thing that always interests, interests me is the authorship and the time period, especially of the book of Daniel. Because Daniel would have been in the 500s B.C., you know, according to the Bible, but modern scholars and skeptics do not like to put Daniel there because you've got all these references to kingdoms and the coming of Christ and these rise and falls of different groups of people and all. It just sounds too good. Almost like somebody maybe that wrote it in the 100s. That's what a lot of skeptics say. Oh, this was written in the 100s B.C. And it's just backward predictions. It's easy to do. Like, for example, I could predict World War One, and I could predict World War Two, and I could predict the Vietnam War because I'm writing after those things. So that's the general point is that, wow, this thing is so specific. All of these prophecies are so dead on that they had to have been written afterwards. Of course, what's going on there is there's that presupposition that there are no miracles and that God can't talk to people. So therefore, the only way Daniel could have known this is if it wasn't really Daniel, it was somebody else coming up with the name and uh, writing it actually much closer to the time of Christ. 
So he takes a look at that and he said, you've got these uh, example of the empire sequence, the Chaldeans, then the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. So if you take a look, uh, don't you know you can take a look sometime on your own there. And he says, if that's true, of course, then if there's no supernatural element to the Bible, then it'd have to be around the time of the rise of the Romans. Okay, so he said, uh, well, here's the deal, though. If Daniel was composed in the 100s B.C., not the five or six hundreds, if it was composed in the 100s, then they have, of course, found a lot of documents at Qumran, then it should be very close to how they wrote at Qumran. It'd be about the same characteristics of vocabulary and syntax and things like that. But he said, they've done tests. And it says the results show that Daniel is linguistically older than the Qumran manuscripts by several centuries. So they couldn't have been composed in the 100s BC. It had to be back in the 5th or late 6th century BC. He says... uh, He's got a lot of information where you can go find further information on this, but we'll skip over that part. So he says, as kind of a wrap-up to that section, he, he says it's clear that a second-century date for the Hebrew chapters of Daniel is not tenable, at least on linguistic grounds. He said it's because the vocabulary has changed, the syntax, the spelling, the word usage. He said it does not sound, it does not look like second-century writing looks way back. He says, in fact, the second century date for the book of Daniel is completely out of the question. So he goes out of his way to really land hard on that. He says, probably, if you wanted to figure out the time of Daniel, they said he's probably born somewhere 620 to 615 BC. He probably lived maybe to the early 500s, maybe 530, make it to 85 or 90 years old. So it says, probably that book was done around then, and it does linguistically, like I say, seem to um, connect with that. All right, um, one other thing. I, I really do like the book of Daniel. So he says, uh, here's another charge, right? Daniel 5. Didn't they get it wrong? Why didn't? Why did they name Belshazzar as the last king of Babylon? Everybody knows it was uh, Nabonidus. And he says, however, archaeology has confirmed this says for a long time people thought Belshazzar was just a legendary figure because no Greek historians, right, none of them, like Herodotus on, knew anything about him or referenced his name. And it says, yes, it's true. Nabonidus, or I guess that's the way you pronounce it, he was the head king of Babylon, but they found out now that he spent time in North Arabia when Cyrus invaded Babylon. So guess who was in charge? His son, Belshazzar. And excavations at Ur, U-R, Ur, have turned up an inscription that Nabonidus did, and it contains a prayer for himself and then a prayer for his firstborn son. Guess what name it is? Belshazzar. Okay, it says, such prayers were offered only for the reigning monarch. So it says, then they found other cuneiform documents, They talk about Belshazzar presenting sheep and oxen at the temple as an offering of the king. Okay, so like he's a substitute for the king. 
But the name of Belshazzar had been forgotten by the time of Herodotus. That's like 450 B.C. So guess what? Do a little bit of uh, logic here. If Herodotus has forgotten it at 450, but it's clear it's it was uh, it happened earlier, Nabonidus and Belshazzar, then the author had to be earlier as well. So we're talking about moving Daniel into the 500s here. It says interesting too that Belshazzar was just the number two king when that writing was on the wall. It says all he could offer Daniel as a reward for deciphering that inscription, many, many tekel and parson, he said he would reward him the third place in the kingdom. Interesting to see that because Nabonidus was the king. Belshazzar, the son, was number two, so all he could offer Daniel was third spot in the kingdom. Well, this should give you an idea, at least, of the kinds of things that are in here. Um, you know, did God approve of Rahab's lie? Why are so many of the Old Testament quotes that are done in the New Testament, they don't seem literal? You now, where did Adam and Eve's sons get their wives? And on and on. So it's, it's Old Testament and it's New Testament. Again, it's called the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And for heaven's sakes, there are difficulties. And so uh, this author handles them with uh, excellent uh, form. A little difficult, maybe, in some spots to read. But uh, it's good if you're struggling with anything at all in the realm of uh, Bible readings, then you might take a look at this. Okay, well, thanks for your time, and um, hope to talk to you again soon.